Want to know how to cultivate influence and meet those who do? Then you're going to love my guest today, John Levy. John is a behavioral scientist specializing in influence, human connection, and decision-making. He also started the Influencers Dinner, a dining experience for industry leaders, ranging from Nobel laureates to Olympic athletes, and from celebrities to executives. With his book, You're Invited, John takes us step-by-step through the art and science of cultivating influence to improve our work, our businesses, and our lives. And a special thanks to my patrons who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and visit my website, barrykibrick.com, to become a supporter of this show. John, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure having you on Between the Lines. What I find so interesting about the book, You're Invited, was the reason, which I never knew before, why you decided to bring people together. And the definition, I guess, was in a way that's very different from networking. Yeah, it's kind of funny. So first of all, I grew up really unpopular, right? Like I was a super geek before being a geek was cool. Now, like the Avengers and comic books and people like, yeah, me too. Everybody loves that stuff. And when I was growing up, I I didn't really fit in, but I figured like, you know, maybe if I could understand how people behave, then I could maybe figure out how to make some real friends. When I was in my twenties, I'd made some progress and I was in the seminar And the seminar leader said that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. And that left me kind of with two options. Option one was to talk to the people in my life about different things. And option two was to figure out how to connect with people. But I realized that I connected people to one another, then it only served to strengthen the relationships that we had. I want to know the most extraordinary people. I want them to know each other so that those positive behaviors spread through a community. But more than just knowing, you emphasize it a number of times in You're Invited, your book, and it is the feeling of belonging that you want to really nurture and develop. That's Mm. an added level as far as I can see. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that people dislike networking, and I would wholeheartedly agree, right? The issue with networking is that it makes us feel dirty. And research has shown this, that the implicit association is wanting to wash. Uh, We don't feel that way about making friends. And that's because one feels natural and the other one feels like a manipulation, like I'm using somebody. Human beings evolved in groups and we're not the fastest. We're not the strongest. Our strength for survival is fundamentally being able to work together. And that requires belonging. And if you look, the greatest punishment in most places is either solitary confinement or exile, which means that for us, the biggest punishment is saying you can no longer be part of the community. At the core of being human is this need to belong. But connections, though, according to you, they're not just knowing each other, they're sharing emotions. Shared emotional connections is the key to fostering this feeling of belonging, because I belonged to a bowling league once. 
And it was kind of cool, but I didn't get that shared emotional connection. And in fact, it's kind of why I quit. I wasn't able to really stay on that same level with everybody in that league. So I think that's an important element that people need to hear. It's not just connecting on a level of activity. It's caring and sharing on an emotional connection. Here's what's interesting about what you just said. It's that, first of all, human beings have no logical side at all, right? Like we're basically just emotions that justify things with really bad logic, which is why for having a bad day, we'll justify having a dessert or buying ourselves that thing that we want at a store. Don't give away all my secrets, please. Don't give away (laughs) all my secrets. Go ahead. Sorry, John. So the interesting thing about that is that it's not about being a part of a community. It's feeling like you are, right? It's not about belonging. It's about the feeling of belonging, right? I could be a card-carrying member of the bowling league. It doesn't mean that I feel like I belong. And that's what's really important. Now, there's great research by these two guys, McMillan and Chavez, and they were realizing that for us, for humans, it's about this sense of community, this feeling like we're part of something. And they found that there are four kind of critical elements. The first is this sense of membership, right? There's a clear group that's on the inside and on the outside. And in the bowling league, it might be that you're a card-carrying member. In the Girl Scouts, it might mean that you uh, took some oath and wear the uniform. Doctors, it might be passing all of your medical exams and being board certified. But there's a clear distinction. And then there's also several other characteristics. One of them is influence, feeling like you have an impact on the group and the group has impact on you. So you might be part of the bowling team, but if you feel like you don't matter, then you won't feel a sense of belonging. Right? If you have no influence over the group or the, your fellow players, then there's two other factors, and essentially an alignment of an integration of fulfillment and needs, which is that you're heading in the same direction. If everybody there wanted to be a pro bowler and you didn't, it wouldn't be the right community for you because you're not aligned on what you care about. And then the final part is kind of shared history and values. And what I love about that one is that stuff's kind of very clear for religious organizations. But what's even funnier to me is that it doesn't even have to be a real history. So did you ever read the Harry Potter series? Now, if I say I didn't, I'm in trouble. And if I say I did, I'm lying. So either (laughs) way, I'm going wrong here. I'm just going to take the fifth. Good answer in your case. (laughs) So there's this incredible photo of two young women dressed up like students at Hogwarts School for Witchcraft and Wizardry, right? the school from Harry Potter. And they're at Universal Studios at Diagonally, the Harry Potter portion of Universal. And they're dressed full on and they're holding wands and they're crying hysterically. And the reason they're crying isn't because there's something wrong, but more so that they, for the first time in their lives, feel like they're participants in the story that meant so much to them. They had a shared history and values. And it was so emotionally overwhelming, even though it wasn't real. Everybody acknowledges it isn't real but it's real to them as a set of values in history. And you say what that does, and I want to be careful how we phrase this because it, it, it gets now, it has almost another term, but emotional safety is what really was developing there. Yes, it's called psychological safety. Psychological safety, excellent. And that's what was happening between them, wasn't it? They sensed that for the first time, they're not alone, like you said. Yes, exactly. They feel fundamentally like they are part of something 
that is larger than themselves and they belong and they feel safe and they feel recognized. And that in itself is pretty rare, especially here's a kind of staggering piece of knowledge. In 1985, the average American had just about three close friends besides family. By 2004, less than a generation later, we were down to just about two. Now, this is absolutely insane. In 19 years, Americans lost one third of their social ties. This is way before the pandemic, clearly, and far before social media really took hold. So the culprit here is probably moving for work. The more people pick up and move, they have to reset their social ties each time. And as a result, they end up feeling isolated or disconnected or losing social ties. Now, what's really concerning about this is a few things. One is that the greatest predictor of human longevity isn't a papaya cleanse that you picked up at the local Whole Foods. The greatest predictor is actually number two is close social ties. And number one is social integration, coming in contact with a lot of people or feeling like you're part of a community. And what concerns me about this is that if we're becoming more and more isolated, then we have less and less of this feeling of belonging and we have less and less social ties. But John, may I ask you something though? Because I have noticed that, but at the same time, some of my ties, because they have gotten sort of more contained they also feel a little stronger. Now, I don't know if that will compensate for the fact that they have shrunk by a third, but I do sense that in my case, and I can only speak for me, I'm not the scientist like yourself, but I feel that the ties that I do have, they seem to fulfill me in a certain way that the larger group did not. Now, maybe that's just because I'm getting older. I, I don't know the reason why, but I am feeling content with lesser ties than I did in my earlier years. So let's separate two things. One is, Barry, you're outgoing, charismatic, and spent your life connecting with people. You have more social ties than 99.9% of the world. So you pruning that down when you feel like you have different priorities in life probably won't have a huge impact in terms of total numbers, right? Versus a person who only has four close friends and then moves and is down to two. Uh, and those are very different experiences. Yeah, I could see that now. The other aspect is that the loneliest people in our society are not the oldest. It seems to be inversely related with age. So Gen Z is reporting feeling completely unseen, unconnected with. They feel isolated. And that means that they're probably not experiencing a profound sense of belonging anywhere. And with people spending less and less time at companies, and now not even ever going into a company, people are getting hired online, living in their parents' homes, and meeting only like the three or four people that they need direct contact with at the company. Our social circles are shrinking even more. And that's what concerns me. Okay. And then that goes back to your invited is you want to bring more people together and Explain, though, since especially that you're dealing, let, let's separate this, because you're dealing with influential people who come together. And I, I was honored to be invited to one of these most amazing dinners. We'll talk about that in a bit. But what does then this Gen Z and Gen X and whoever else might be suffering, what 
outlets are we going to create? Are we not? I, I don't see the Mason's Lodge opening up again. I don't <laughs> see everyone going back to church. There was that bowling. I, I said, wasn't there even a great book called Bowling Alone? So yeah. since it's shrinking, and by the way, this is going to sound strange, but that's how I used to bowl by myself. That's how I loved it. So again, but let me take myself out because you're right. So the key with behavioral science is never to confuse people for person. And what I mean by that is that I might give a statistic that says 95% of people fit into this category. You could be in the 5% that don't. There are too many mitigating circumstances to evaluate any one person. But across the general population, these things tend to be true. And so we have, as human beings, something called the false consensus effect, which is that we assume that most people agree with our opinion of the world. We assume we're intelligent and thereby others must hold the same view. And we also have something called the frequency illusion, which is that just because we actually misevaluate the frequency to which things happen simply because they are more salient to us. So if I ask people, are they scared of shark attacks? And they said, yeah, oh my God, they happen all the time. And you actually look at the statistics, they never happen. People are terrified of terrorism. Nobody dies of terrorism. Like nobody has died of terrorism in I don't even know how long. And it's not just because we might have a really great intelligence community supporting us, but because the things that kill people are walking. <laughs> They're like... Uh, heart attacks and cholesterol, like the slow killers. But we don't think about that because those things aren't as salient. They aren't as easy to remember. They're not as terrifying to see as a building exploding. And so the key when we're actually looking at human behavior is understanding that there are certain generalities that are true across most people, and they might not be true specifically about you, and that's fine. Isn't that funny? I, you hit it on the head. I always assumed if I'm feeling it, someone else is feeling it. And I still think there's an element to that. There is still this human connection we have. We're like you said, a perfect example from the book is we all struggle with something. So just by the fact that we all struggle, and especially as you said, when you were younger, you felt like a failure. Almost all of us at one time with some outliers feel like a failure, feel like we're struggling. But what I think you give us a little key to that. And that is, you say, being honest about our struggles could really set us free and maybe even reverse some of the negative aspects of the way we're moving if we do open up about our struggles. That might even be the easiest way to reconnect because what else do we all have in common? Well, there are the fact that we struggle. So you bring up two interesting points. The first is that people love to try and seem perfect and that they have it all together. And it turns out that there's a behavioral bias known as the pratfall effect. And the pratfall effect essentially states that if you screw up a little in front of people, they'll actually like you more. And it's the reason that romantic comedies, the lead male or female, are always like falling all over themselves. They're kind of clumsy and kind of silly. It makes it endearing, right? If people look too perfect, it makes us uncomfortable because there's nothing human about it. So researchers ran an experiment where they had people go in for interviews. And then they had some of the participants accidentally spill some coffee on themselves or drop some papers. And when looking at ratings, the ones that dropped stuff and spilled stuff rated higher. And that's because 
it takes the pressure off when somebody is imperfect and acknowledges it. And so it comes back to actually how human beings develop trust. There's this misconception that trust precedes vulnerability, but it actually doesn't. So Barry, the two of us were walking down the street and I said, Mary, writing this book was the most stressful, exhausting experience of my life. Just totally burnt out. In that moment, I have signaled vulnerability. I've said something that doesn't necessarily make me look perfect. Now, you have a few options. You can ignore me. You can make fun of me. Oh, John, you're so weak. Be tough. You know, <laughs> work your way through it. And if you do either of those two things, trust will be reduced because I don't want to be yelled at right? <laughs> or ignored. But if instead you acknowledge that I said that and then signal vulnerability back and say, John, during COVID, I've been super stressed as well. Work has been crazy. What's going on? Then suddenly you've signaled vulnerability back to the same degree. And now the two of us know that we can trust each other at that higher level. And that's how trust is actually formed. It's through these vulnerability loops. When somebody has a pratfall moment, let's call it, they drop their papers, it's a moment of vulnerability. And this gives people the opportunity to actually complete the loop. And it's why we actually find them endearing. I think that's why so many people were willing to cook you dinner and why you started the influencers is because you open up vulnerability. Even as I'm listening to you, geez, I got to become more vulnerable. One of the things, and maybe it's generational again or what, but I love to show my mistakes. I really do. I'm proud of them even. And I make them often and the same ones all the time. I find that an interesting thing. I always find people who say they never make the same mistake twice. I say, well, you just lied because I only make make, mistakes over and over again. They're not the same exact mistake, but it's the same type of mistake. There's words that I've never in my life spelled correctly. And I every day misspell the same word over and over again. Like you would think 40 years old, the guy will figure out how, the difference between there and there or the I before E in the word friend or something. I'm literally making that mistake every single day over and over again. Oh, yeah. I had to make it a part of my personality and pride myself on it. In fact, I even had a guest on once who wrote The Art of the Mistake. I said, that's what I am. I'm the art of the mistake because I just do it over and over again. But at the same time, though, I want to get back to this vulnerability loop because although I am not ashamed of the mistakes I make, nor am I ashamed of showing how vulnerable I am. There is an element in me that says I'm invincible, that I don't want this to come out. I want Mm. to feel this sense of invincible because it'll protect me in the long run and it'll protect my family. So when I'm listening to you, And I even hear how the empathy pours out of your mouth. I'm a little jealous because there's no doubt that I know I feel sympathy, but empathy is that extra level. And I'm fairly certain I don't have that. And I yet admire it in yourself and in others when I see it. First of all, thank you. Secondly, it's interesting because I think in general, human beings look their best when they're willing to look terrible. And the only question is, how terrible are we willing to look, right? So if we actually want to build trusted, meaningful relationships, the kind of relationships that are predictive of longevity or even team success, right? The 
greatest predictor of a team succeeding isn't IQ and genius, but something called psychological safety. The idea that you won't be eliminated from the group or reprimanded for having a a, uh, descending view or opinion. And so these kinds of levels of belonging requires either that we really pay attention when people are opening those vulnerability loops so that we can close them, or it means that at times we have to take the lead and really open those vulnerability because if we don't, then, and they feel uncomfortable to, then it'll never happen. Now, some people say, well, aren't you risking getting hurt really bad? And my view is, yeah, but a few seconds of pain or whatever it is won't compare to losing five, 10, 15 years from my life because I'm lonely. And loneliness is on par with, what is it, smoking almost a pack a day of cigarettes in terms of its health impact. That's kind of crazy. Well, there's another thing you bring out. And it was funny, before I started doing Between the Lines as a podcast, I was doing a thing called Thoughts Through Time, where I was looking at different philosophers. And I ended up starting that with Adam Smith, the creator of the book, The Wealth of Nations, and the obviously the father of capitalism and modern economics. But before that, I didn't realize you were that old that you could partner with. <laughs> I knew like, Adam first. I know you're ancient. I just didn't know that you were old enough to have co-done a project with Adam Smith. No, just it was a solo project. What I found interesting when I read your book was that in your invited, you use a term that he stressed that was so important in both the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. And now more than ever, and you say it is as well, benevolence. When you attach this community together, and as you say, trust and vulnerability, these things form a loop, but benevolence is one step above. That is when you are truly even above competence, honesty, integrity. I I remember reading that in your book. It's benevolence. When you can show this goodness, not as, uh, look how good I am, but show this goodness to your fellow member of your community or even larger than your community. So it's interesting. When I was researching uh, the book, I thought I had a pretty decent understanding of trust. And then I came across a researcher by the name of Kent Grayson from University of Chicago. And he looks at understanding really like the deep science of trust. And he pointed out that we all talk about trust as this absolutely essential factor for company success, our personal lives, right? If people say you want to have a great relationship, what's the most important thing? Trust. And then we say communication is the tendency. Now, that's super interesting because if I were to ask most people, fine, then what is trust made out of? They can't really tell me. And Kent was actually able to break it down. He described it as trust is made of three things. Competence, the ability to do something. Honesty, if you're truthful. And then the third is benevolence. And you pointed to this, Barry. They're not all equally valued. So if Michael Jordan were to shoot and miss, you wouldn't say, oh, he's incompetent. I can't trust him. He's arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. But what you would probably say is he missed a shot and he'll probably make the next one, right? So a breach in competence is not a big deal. But if we found out somebody was lying to us, we probably wouldn't say, oh, it's a one-off. We'd probably begin to doubt everything they have said and everything they say moving forward. But there's this weird loophole and it works like this. So the two of us are walking down the street and you turn to me and say, John, 
do you mind if we stop by a friend's house? And I say, sure, I'd be more than happy to. And when we get there, 40 of my closest friends jump out and scream, surprise, right? It's a big celebration in honor of my book launch. Everybody has copies of You're Invited, signing everybody, whatever it is, right? But it would be really weird if I turned to you and said, Barry, you just lied to me. I don't think we can be friends anymore. Like that'd just be super strange. And that's because as you pointed out, human beings value benevolence actually above honesty. And if you have somebody who's incredibly skilled, but has no group orientation, you actually don't want them on the team because that'll just mean arrogance because they don't care about anybody but themselves. Meanwhile, if you have somebody who has high group orientation and lower skill, you can always upskill them, but it's virtually impossible to really train somebody to care about others. And so the people that you'd prefer are the ones that might be technically less capable, but you can deal with that, that actually care about the other human beings around them. Because if you're stuck in the middle of a firefight, you want to know that whoever's behind you has your back, even if they're not the top shooter. And that's because it doesn't matter if somebody's the top shooter, if they've run away and left you there alone. You know, there's a new series out called Ted Lasso. I don't know if you're familiar with that series. I love that series. Oh, Apple I, TV Plus. Love it. I am begging to get Jason on my show, in fact, because I so much love that. But you just gave almost the plot away. No, I know. I mean that with a, a in the sense of humor, because what he does is the most important thing to improve that team is just what you said, that someone has your six, as they say, someone has your back, not the best kicker. In fact, he trades the best player because he wasn't part of that team. And the team begins to win once he does that. Yep. And that's what's really interesting is, listen, there's uh, I think it was the Bulls when they were, you know, in the 90s, they were like this team that everybody admired, right? They had Pippin and I'm, I'm so funny. I'm referencing all the sports stuff. I know nothing about sports. I know more about like Quidditch from Harry Potter than I do about real sports. I think Dennis Rodman had this reputation of being super disruptive. And somebody asked, I guess, the coach about him. And he said, listen, you can have one Dennis Rodman, but no more. If the moment that you have another disruptive player, you've lost it all, but we can handle one, especially if they're that talented. And I get it. Sometimes it's really tempting to be to have an incredibly talented person that goes to the beat of their own drum. But it's also really corrosive for the other people because they feel less valued. And high performance is, according to Project Aristotle, which is that Google project I mentioned, psychological safety really is an absolutely critical element. There's a player named Shane Battier, absolutely brilliant guy, two-time NBA champion from when he was on the Miami Heat, but somebody did a scientific study on him. And Battier is not a legendary player like LeBron James, right? Or Michael Jordan or any of these other guys. He's a glue player. And it's very interesting because a guy like Battier, researchers found that every single team he was on played better because he was on it. And it's not because he's the best player. It's because of his ability to function as the glue of the team. He has such incredible sportsmanship and such incredible work ethic that it actually causes everybody else to elevate their game. He gives people this experience of belonging. And that's pretty incredible. And John, you emphasize that not only is that important, but how do you maintain that? And you say something in the book, You're Invited, that really 
caught my attention. You said that it's the, I'm going to paraphrase it a bit. Okay. These are your words. It's the over and over of doing these micro actions, these small incremental improvements that really are a part of what you would say creates that glue. It's the essence of what that player must do because they see it over and over. And like you said, if it was a one-off, it wouldn't mean anything in the positive either. So it's got to be done over and over again. But the actions themselves, they could be very small. People do not have to think that you have to do great things constantly. It's a small gesture. It could be a tap on the shoulder. It could be just, you know, a fact that you did anything in a small amount of time in a small way, but you do it over and over again. That again, builds not only your, by the way, we're talking about a group trust. I think it builds your own inner trust as well. So here's what's what I love about what you're pointing out. So we talked about vulnerability loops as like this kind of base element. Traditionally, friendships are built or relationships are built over the long term because it takes time for those vulnerability loops to open and close. So it's, I bump into you on the street and I ask about how your son is doing. The fact that I remember that you have a son and that I cared enough to ask opens a vulnerability loop and you can close it by sharing. Well, in the book, John, you're invited. You literally, and this to me, you talk about a little epiphany sort of went off in my head because it would be the last thing I would have thought of. But you say for starters, you should ask people for more favors because this builds again that sense of you need them, they need you. And again, maybe it's the generations, I don't know. But the last thing I ever wanted to do was ask someone a favor. But you opened up my mind when we even had the Zoom meeting. That's why I began to start this. When I heard you say, you need to ask people for favors, I said, John, I raised my hand. And that was very funny. You said, just press that little button. If you don't know, just shout it out. I'm the only one out of, a, I think there were hundreds of people on this thing. I had to shout it out because I didn't know where the little hand That's was. So funny. But I shouted it out and I asked a favor. I said, John, I want you to be on the show. And it was, ah, ah that's why I'm going to do this. So I didn't realize that. It's weird not to realize something for so long in life and then finally say, my gosh, asking people favors is important, according to John. I'm going to take him up on this. So here's what's super funny about this. I grew up the same way. Like, let's not bother people, save my favors for another day. But it turns out that actually works counter what's to our benefit. And the reason is that like the IKEA effect, when people invest effort into us, they care more about us. But here's the other side of it. May I explain something? Because I don't think we actually talked about the IKEA effect. So I know it's in your book, but just explain it a little bit, just in case... People the IKEA don't. effect is that people disproportionately care about their IKEA furniture because they have to assemble it. So anything we invest effort into, we care about disproportionately. It's why people care about their own kids and not other people's, because our own kids are a pain in the butt that we have to get up in the middle of the night to like change their diapers and feed them and help them with their homework and wake up early to take them to soccer practice and so on and so forth. And so this is... All to say that if I, Barry, came to you, how many Emmys do you have? I have three for doing this show and a total of six for other shows that I've done. Amazing. And so if I come to you and I say, clearly, Barry, you have an expertise in media. Can I get your advice on something? Now, I'm probably scared that I'm bothering you. And I might be. 
But here's what's really interesting. On average, you're really flattered that I came to you. Oh, John, you are understating that. I mean it. I'm so flattered that you're right. That's why I'm saying I can't believe it didn't really enter my own mind, even though that's the way I personally felt, because you're right. There's nothing better than that feeling. So here's what's even more interesting. Not only are you going to be flattered, you will think more of me for coming to you because in your mind, you're pretty smart. You know your stuff. And if I'm recognizing the fact that you know your stuff, then you think I'm even smarter. Like clearly John's a smart guy. He's coming to me for advice on this topic. And then when you do invest that effort, it actually causes you to care more about me. So not only are, am I benefiting by flattering you, but I'm also benefiting from you investing effort and caring more. Now, the key, of course, is reciprocity because nobody likes a taker, right? Somebody who's completely selfish who just takes all the time. But it's pretty wild. It means that when people offer us support and we say no, we're actually stopping a vulnerability loop. It can be very insulting, right? I used to think of it as I don't want to bother them. Now, when somebody offers me like a glass of water when I get to their home, I'm like, yeah, and I'll take two shots of tequila and a lasagna. <laughs> They're like, but we didn't offer. I'm like, yeah, but you will. And the reason is also really funny. There was this great study done where people were stopped on the street and asked for direction. And often they wouldn't give them because complex directions can be a pain in the butt. But if they were asked for the time and then asked for directions, most of the time they'd give it, which means that the key is in stacking favors from small to large. Once somebody puts a bit of effort into your relationship, then you're viewed as somebody worthy of effort. And thereby, if you ask for some more, you're more likely to get it. By the way, you have to be careful, especially asking New Yorkers, because I remember when people would ask people, how did they get to the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty? New Yorkers didn't know because they never went themselves. I've, was- I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. It's <laughs> so funny. I have no idea. I assume you take like a ferry from somewhere. That's exactly right. And it's A wonderful experience, by the way. I had the pleasure of doing it, but it was many years after living in California, never while I was in New York. Yeah. I've lived in New York 40 years. I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. And so I used to tell people, no, the New Yorkers aren't rude. They just don't know how to go to those places. You ask them where the nearest original raised pizza is, (laughs) they know that one, but that they don't know. John, let me go with another thing too, because I think especially when you were talking about Gen Z. We are now in this instant gratification kind of feeling. In fact, just this morning, it Mm -hmm. took my computer for whatever reason to open up the Word document. It felt like hours. Now, I actually looked at the time. It was about two minutes. Prior to that, just 30 years ago, you would have had to roll in a paper on a typewriter, you know, but we, our time has gotten so condensed we get so much more anxious. But you are very adamant that in your book, you're invited that all of the things required to keep connections up, to build this trust, to build this vulnerability loop, you have to look at these things as not being a sprint, as not something that happens immediately, but you have to be patient enough to let these things evolve over time. And then I believe it was the 1980s book came out by James Carsey. It's called Finite and Infinite Games. And Carsey in it argues that every game we play in life is either 
a short-term game, finite, where the rules are very clear. The score system is very clear. Everybody is in agreement on it. So like, let's say tennis. We know how long a tennis match lasts. We know how you score. The rules are fine, are clear, and the game has a beginning and end. And the moment it ends, it's over, and that's it. You can play another game after it, but that game is over. The other type of game is an infinite game. For example, the game of business. The game of business started before we were born and will continue after we die. There's no clear winner. There's no clear score. It is not better to be a profitable company that earns billions versus a company that earns hundreds of millions if your personal metric is environmental impact, right? So there's no clear winners, no clear losers. The objective of an infinite game is to play because of the sheer joy of playing. And on top of that, everybody can pick their own metrics and their own kind of status or what they actually care about. But the key is to keep the game going as long as possible. And the problems occur when people try to play infinite games as if they're finite. So if you launch a company and you put lots and lots of pressure to sell a lot as if the next quarter is all that matters, and then you have a huge quarter but then nobody wants to do business with you after that because you're so pushy, then you have now applied finite rules to an infinite game and then nobody wants to play with you anymore. Distinguishing, excuse me, you know, because right now you see that occurring physically in our economics right now. Yes. Oh, without a doubt. You have this wisdom, you have this influence. How do we push that out there? Because without that, I'm concerned, just as you were explaining that example about business, and I know that everyone is only looking at that next quarter, I get, it makes me nervous a little bit. And not that I don't feel deep down that we as humans or hopefully we'll figure it out, but it does seem like something we have to really push out. I agree. I don't have a simple solution for you. What I can tell you is that human relationships are often played, and this is why networking, I think, really stinks, as if it's a finite game, as if the number of cards I collect allows me to win or lose. The number of phone calls I make allows me to win or lose. But that's, I'd say, a little short-sighted. And the reason is that if my only objective is to meet as many people as possible, it seems that there isn't that much joy in that. And so I might be able to do it for a week, but not a lifetime. The true joy of human belonging and connection is the long-term benefit, is developing those relationships over time. And for that to happen, we need to play it like an infinite game. And so in my mind, it doesn't matter if you have a best friend today or not, right? When I was a teenager, I did not have a best friend. What matters is that we play the game of human relationships and human connection and friendships and communities as the game that it is, which is infinite. It it is played for the sheer joy of playing it. And over time, as long as you play it that way, you will probably have an improved community that has more and more interesting people in it. But when I started the influencers dinners, it wasn't, oh, by the end of this quarter, I better have a Nobel laureate there. No, the Nobel laureates will show up when they can attend. We'll keep inviting, we'll keep improving the event, we'll keep improving the invitation to make it more and more appealing. And eventually they'll come. And if they don't come, that's fine because I was doing it to develop great relationships, not just to have this one person come to the event. We talked about Ted 
Lasso and how both of us are fans because of that same philosophy that he has. You have someone in the book that I happen to also love, and I had her on my show, and that's Valerie Condos Field. And you kept mentioning before in this last little chunk about joy. That's the whole purpose of what she did in her philosophy of coaching the UCLA gymnastics team. It was to bring back joy, bring the joy back into the competition. So many of those girls were brutalized practically by their coaches. But her sole mission was to bring back the joy. We can't overstate that. Joy is, it's joyful. (laughs) (laughs) She has, she, Valerie is such an extraordinary woman because she realized, first of all, that the game she was playing was wrong. She was playing the game of win at all costs so we could have bragging rights. And then she had like a really serious moment where she realized, I don't actually value that. That's not something that inspires me. It's something that's actually making me miserable. And as a byproduct, all of her student athletes were miserable. Everybody touching the program was miserable. And they went from being a really solid program to being, I think, the worst or one of the worst in the country. Then she realized, you know what would make her joyous is if she could get her student athletes to come out of UCLA being champions in life. If they were well-rounded women ready for the world and what it had to offer. So win or lose on the court or on the mat, her job was to develop them into people that make great decisions and to build up their confidence and strength so that they can succeed. And the moment that she made that shift, the entire game was played different. I want to circle it back to your thing about asking favors, because I know when she made that change, she confided in me. She made that change when she decided through her husband to ask the great coach, John Wooden, the winningest NCAA basketball coach of all time, a favor. How do you do it? She asked him that favor and that favor, I'm going full circle to that favor loop, went back. And that's how she then began to realize what John Wooden says, success is doing the best that you could possibly be. And it's not the win or loss column. He never, ever said, you got to win this one. It was just do the best you can. So it circles back. You ask favors, you bring joy. It is amazing how you're invited, even the, the words you're invited, your book ties all of that together. And here you go full loop with someone who learned this by asking a favor of um, the greatest coach potentially of of all time. Yeah, he was an exceptional human being. In decades before anybody was even considering ideas like belonging and connection, he redefined success. And he defined it not by the score on the board, but by the satisfaction of knowing that you put in all of the effort you could and left it all out there. And that's, he was so far ahead of his time that it's pretty incredible. And what's amazing is that an era where everybody's obsessed with optimization and results and every piece of data that we can find, there's something really amazing about hearing from coaches that value human beings first. In your book, 
you actually talk about that. And I'm going to use your words because I think you just said, in fact, it, it was so extraordinary. The word you use, and it's a word that I love, and we all, in fact, as you say, it's the most desired feeling or emotional state we have, and that is awe. When we have awe, according to everything I've read, and especially in your book, it's such a state of reflection, a state of existence that it inspires us when we experience it. And yet, at the same time, we can't almost go out and try to get it. It has to come to us. We, you, you can't seek or has to find you. I think all you can do is be open so that when you finally see it and feel it, you can love it and appreciate it. But I don't know how you could find it. It has to find you, it seems like. Yeah, it's interesting. Awe, I believe, is a moment that redefines your perspective on the world, right? You think the world is one way, and then you realize that it might be a completely different way. And it shifts your perspective. And people describe it as like a that moment when they held their child for the first time. Nothing physically changed between then and the moment before, right? They had a child in both, but suddenly they're holding this being and the universe disappears and they're fully engrossed in this moment. And they realize that everything's going to change. And that's pretty incredible. And it's arguably the most desired human experience. But if you really look, what's nice about it is that people also feel more generous and more connected as a byproduct. So if you can trigger it somehow, it will fundamentally uh, redefine your ability to connect. Now, maybe you trigger the op. As I said, maybe you just have to trigger what you can control in this random universe of ours, and that would be the openness to be accepting of it. So as when what's the answer? You know that if, when opportunity knocks, don't forget you got to answer the door. Yeah. So it, I think in this case, when the it happens, you got to answer the awe. <laughs> it's just it's, it's going to come to you. I think that it probably. The more you're exposed to, the more likely you're going to experience it, right? So if I often associate it with that, like the moment when I realized how big the universe is versus how small I am, and that only occurs as a byproduct of a moment of realization that I need to either be exposed through experiences or knowledge to, to even have something like that happen. And there's, I think, things that twist endings at movies can almost get us there. Like you watch The Sixth Sense and you're like, oh my God, that's crazy. How did I not see that coming? But that plot device won't always get us there. When you experienced the awe of the size of the universe, I wanted to add another layer to that. And that was that I think when you experience how awesome you are within that universe, that role that you play even as infinitesimal as it may be compared to the vastness, that's another layer of awe. That's great. That's really great. Check you out, Barry. <laughs> Let me ask you this because you hinted at it, but the words you use in your invited, I just found too irresistible not to bring it up again. And it was when you were talking about way at the top of the show, the personalities of us as individuals versus the person's. But there's, there's a term you use, and it's called, you say it like this, our wonderful irrationalities. We are, as a species, predictably irrational. There's something about that throughout all of this process of having to 
do so much in life to realize the wonder of our own irrational behavior. Again, a little moment of awe for me. So this, the term I believe was coined by a great behavioral economist, Dan Ariely, and it is that we don't make sense, but we consistently don't make sense in the same way over and over again. So it's irrational, but we can predict that it's going to happen. And here's like a fun little example. And listeners, you can play along as we do this. Barry, imagine you're going to be offered a vacation and you can either go to Romania or you can go to Croatia and have your wallet stolen, or you can go to Croatia and have an incredible meal. Which do you choose? <laughs> I read the book. It's not fair, John. I almost <laughs> know the answer I have to give here. But you know what? I'm going to give the exact answer that because when I read your book, I actually, like I always do, I always relate everything to me anyway. So that's not a yeah. problem. I'm going to give you the example back if I can. I sure. had an opportunity of going, long story short, going to a racetrack when I had no money. I bet a weird story, in it, and I'll tell it sometime on another podcast, but I was invited to go to this track and I bet on my favorite number, which I'm not going to give because it's practically in every one of my passcodes, but I bet on this horse and I bet the double and up came the two long shots and I won over $900 on this $2 bet. The next day, I awesome. felt so lucky, and you'll see how this comes back to you. I felt so lucky. The guys that invited me to this wanted me to play some poker with them. And, and the, during the poker game, I lost $75 to $100. I felt so horrible losing that $75 to $100 that I lost all of the joy I had from that almost $1,000, $2 bet. So yeah. in answer of that response... I don't want to get my wallet lost. That would hurt me more than the great meal would make me feel. That's yes. So what you're pointing to is myself. human beings have something called loss aversion, which is that we tend to feel two and a half times more pain from losing something than the pleasure we get from gaining it. And so on average, losing a new laptop will hurt way more than getting a new laptop or winning that money versus losing it. What's interesting is, I don't remember who did this, but they researched the effect on intimate relationships. And if you say something, let's say mean to your wife, Barry, that's going to take five compliments to make up for it, not two and a half. So just watch out. It's why you need lots of flowers and chocolates and so on when uh, you screw up. So the interesting thing is, uh, and this is to the listeners, if you're like most people, you chose having a great meal in Croatia. And that's because human beings tend not to make decisions outside of a context. And so you weren't really choosing between the three options. You were choosing between the ones that were kind of similar that you could clearly tell one is better than the other. So having a great meal, probably way better than having your wallet stolen. So you ended up in Croatia. The thing is, there was nothing stopping you from having a great meal in Romania. And so the entire decision process was irrational, but it was irrational in a very predictable way. We knew most people were going to end up having a great meal in Croatia. Now, let me just say, whoever among you who's listening said, no, I wanted to have my wallet stolen because it would have been a great story. Let me know. I can tell you where you can send your wallet. I will be happy to take it. <laughs> and I will take your money and all that. That'd be great. It's no problem. You can have a great story and I'll have more money. And then Barry and I can go to an off-track betting and see if... 
think of how lucky he really is. <laughs> you know, I know podcasts were allowed to go. By the way, that's funny. You have a whole thing in the book about when you had to convert yourself to a, a Zoom situation during the pandemic. Yes. Like you shouldn't just do a click and lift. I think that was the phrase you used or something like that. Lift and shift. And I'm learning how to do that between a TV series and a podcast now. I'm learning that I can't just lift from what I did and shift. So I, I do have a little bit more time to play with you. So I'm going to take advantage of it right now. And I do want to say, though, that in the book, because no matter what, I'm not going to have that much time to cover it. There is a section in particular about business and success in business. And I always, you hinted that what success really in business was, but in the book, there's guidelines of how you can influence people and be doing so in a endearing manner that is really tremendous for your business. And when I say business, I don't mean even if your business, whether it's Google, Apple, or just your home business as a creator or whatever you might be, even an accountant, it doesn't matter to me. But what the thing that you brought out, and I want to hit because we're not going to be able to cover everything in the business section, which is so important. We'll leave that for the people to read it in your book, You're Invited. But the one thing is the key element is showing gratitude. That is something that if I even do a little bit of a mantra in the morning, it's what I call my gratitude mantra. For some reason, when you can not only show gratitude, which is what's important on one level. But if you could internally feel grateful, I almost think when you internally feel grateful, you can't help but create gratitude amongst all those you come in contact to in business and in life. This is super fun that you bring this up. And there's a, a really wonderful study. And when you look at human happiness, there's virtually nothing I can do right now that will have you be happier in a month, right? And there's like, you get a new house after a month, you kind of get used to it, maybe two months. You get a new laptop within a week. It's just what you're working with. It's often known as the hedonic treadmill, which is that once you get to that higher level, you get used to it and then going down feels terrible. But there is one thing that researchers have found actually has an impact three months out on your happiness. And that's a crazy amount of time. And what it is, is if I have you sit down and pick somebody that you really admire and write a letter to them expressing why you respect them, adore them, what they've done for you that's so wonderful. And then you're going to do something a little bit scary. You're going to go and meet them and actually read the letter to them. And it turns out that doing that can have a measurable increase to your happiness for the next three months. That is insanity. There's virtually nothing else that can actually have that kind of impact, right? Even if you look at people like winning the lottery, they're not particularly happy after. And so it is fundamentally this state of gratitude that can have a huge impact on the quality of our lives. And I love that you bring that up. Well, John, on that note, I'm going to say how grateful I am that you were my guinea pig and my first invite on the podcast, Barry Kibrick Between the Lines. I don't know who better and who more grateful I could be than having you as that guest, John. I thank you so much. Barry, this has been an absolute treat and a privilege to be number one. Thank you for having me on. 
I know this is probably the wrong medium that I don't have to do this because your contact will be always seen whenever they are looking in their iPhone to listen to this. But I do think I want, would, uh, would you like me to give out your, how people can connect to you? Because I think it's uh, your the website. Invited. Yeah, it's uh, you're invited.info, Y-O-U-R-E, invited.info for book stuff. And then on social media, I'm John Levy, TLB, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y, T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy. And I'm that on all social media channels. I'm going to end with your words, John. The beauty of an invitation is that it has the ability to fundamentally change the dynamic. You, my friend, have changed all of our dynamics. And once again, I'm so grateful that you joined me. Thank you, John.